Welcome to Makeup Lessons for Life. I'm Peggy Fraser O'Connor, the executive producer and host of the show, and I am delighted to have you join me today. I am so missing my co-host, though, Sharon Braxton. She is away on family business, and I can't wait for her to be back with us. But sitting in for her today as my co-host is the beautiful and amazing Sarah Davis. Sarah is a wellness coach. Her life is devoted to teaching, counseling, and encouraging women to be healthy in their body, mind, soul, and spirit. Sarah is part of our team at Makeup Lessons for Life, and she is truly one of the most gifted and insightful individuals I have ever met. She's also one of my dearest friends. So, Sarah, welcome today. Thank you for being my sidekick, and you are a joy to be with. And you have a very special relationship with our guest, Letitia Wheeler. So, I want you to tell the listeners a little bit about her and how you two met. Absolutely. Well, it's funny because actually she and I used to attend the same church and I had met her sister, Rihanna, Yes. and she was uh, a teacher with me at the school at American Heritage Academy and we coached together and it was through uh, Rihanna that I had met Letitia and oddly enough, when I first became a wellness coach, shortly after I got my certification, Letitia was in one of my first women's yes. groups. And so that was a lot of fun. And we've gotten to know each other over the years much better. And I can say this, that she is an amazing, beautiful, she strong, absolutely is. talented. I mean, can I go on? <laughs> yes, <Brilliant>. yes, yes. <laughs> She's going, stop, yes, stop. I oh, know, I know. <laughs> um, but I'm, just, I'm, I'm filled Aww. with joy every time Thank I you. speak with her and spending time with her is always an inspiration. And she has been on this journey with her book um, for about the last two to three years now. And as she was writing it, um, we would... Uh, what I call spitball. We would spitball. <laughs> That's attractive. <laughs> I know, right? Ideas uh, back and forth, and yes. she would call me with you know thoughts or um, different different things that she needed to work through. Yes. And it, I was just so honored to be mm-hmm. a part of that and then had the opportunity to introduce her into a few social justice arenas and how we can have um, conversations, safe conversations around mm-hmm. race. And so I'm just yes. excited for her. I feel like um, I was kind of a midwife. <laughs> I was in the room. I'm not going to claim Emphasis on kind of. Yeah, I was in the back going, So it's just beautiful. And so I'm excited for today and really having an opportunity to dig deep into Letitia's heart and hear her story and let other people hear from her and just really give the vision that God has given her. So this is an amazing time. It's going to be a great day today. It is going to be great. Well, as Sarah mentioned, our very special guest today is Letitia Wheeler, author of the book, Half Breed, Finding Unity in a Divided World. And we are so honored to have her with us in the studio. And I have entitled her segment, Great Expectations. Wow. I'm putting a positive spin and outlook on a discussion topic that our country and actually every country in the world is struggling with at the moment. Because I believe that we can choose, if we desire, to expect greatness to come from us, even as we wrestle with pains of the past. We can, together, emerge triumphantly to a place of healing, restoration, and wholeness. And you know, the capacity for greatness resides in each of us, but we will have to expect greatness from ourselves. So here are some questions for you to consider. 
Are you trying to understand how to deal with the racial, social, and political divide within your family, your friends, and your community? Could there be a larger purpose for unity within race, creed, and color? Is it just possible that those who are oppressed, discriminated, and rejected hold the potential to unlock healing and reconciliation? Well, our guest Letitia is a passionate influencer, author, and speaker whose greatest desire is to motivate others to walk in the fullness of their purpose, overcome fear, and stand strong in their faith despite life's biggest obstacles. She believes, as I do, that there is a solution for the political, racial, and social unrest in our country. Compelling and insightful, Half-Breed is filled with real-life experiences from the biblical author who shares the keys to uniting our nation and, really, uniting our world. The book will challenge and equip you to carry out healing and hope in relationships and in your sphere of influence. Letitia, my friend, thank you so much for joining us today, and I'm excited to share your story, your journey, and your God-inspired vision for healing and wholeness with our listeners. But before we do that, I have one personal thing to say to you. Okay. I am sitting here with the lovely Sarah, who's a beautiful black lady, and Letitia's mom and dad were both white and black, and I'm sitting here, frankly, this is the joke about Peggy, so white that I could scare a small child in the dark. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the three of us have very different backgrounds and come from a very, yes. very different mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. But I have three biracial grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So I am listening and learning from you and sitting in a space where I imagine what their take on the world is going to be how they would see and will see right now they're real real small yeah how they will see the world through their eyes and i want to learn i want to learn i want to step outside my comfort zone and i want to see the world if the lord will help me through the eyes of other people so this is very personal to me and i'm so glad that you're here so without further ado let's begin with your life right now please tell me about your family your husband and your children what's a snapshot of your life at the moment (laughs) well thank you peggy i'm honored to be here and thank you sarah so much i couldn't imagine being here with two greater people thank you um so my family today so i am married to my husband james and we have been married for 17 years Mm And we have two amazing young men, boys, 16. Well, they wouldn't refer to themselves as boys, but of course not. 16. <laughs> Do they ever? 16 year old who's a junior in high school, phenomenal basketball athlete, academics, um, scholar. I also have a 14 year old who's a freshman in high school as well. And he is right now currently in football season. So, how I spend my time is screaming at football games mm-hmm. and then transferring over to yell at basketball games. Well, I'm so glad you have a voice to be able to. I drink extra tea today. So how did you meet your husband? Tell us how how you did that. Yeah, we met at work. And so, um, ironically, we both went to the same college, but my husband is a few years older than I am. And he played basketball. And I ran track. And so, you know, the the athletic community in college is pretty small. And so when we met at work, we talked about some of the same, you know, um, athletes that we knew in the department and, and such. And so we had a natural click right away, even though it was, it was in the workplace that we met. Mm-hmm. Well, right now, you are living every woman's dream. I think you are beautiful. Aww. You have a loving husband, gorgeous home. I've been Thank there. You. 
a precious family, but as with all of us, life is filled with twists and turns. And I personally believe that at some point in another, we are going to face life head on. Mm -hmm. And we are all the sum total of all the experiences that we have as individuals in our lives. So let's go back to the beginning. Um, Would you kind of give us a little bit of an understanding of your unique heritage? You have, I know, a very special bond with two women in your life, two grandmothers. Would you tell me about those two women and their backgrounds? Absolutely. I'd be honored to. So I have my mother's mother Mm -hmm. and my father's mother, and I have a very close relationship with both of them. My mother's mother, we refer to as grandma, and Mm -hmm. she was born and raised in East Germany. And she lived during the time of World War II and Hitler Mm. and the terrifying time that his influence had on that country. So much so that she remembers her father, who was a forester in East Germany, she recalls that because he would not join their forces, that he was actually murdered in their home. And she witnessed him being imprisoned in their home. And eventually he was murdered. And so she remembers that, saw that firsthand, lived through Germany during those horrific years that we now see in the the movies. Mm -hmm. Um, She came to the States when she married my grandfather, who actually was uh, Irish and Polish and Russian and moved from New York, Brooklyn, New York, Williamsburg, New York. Mm -hmm. And he was stationed in Germany and they met there. And when they first tried to marry, she was actually enemy of the state. So the America would not actually honor her, her citizenship. I wouldn't honor their marriage, um, even though they'd already had a child together and my mother was born in Germany. But something very unique about her story is that she was there during the time of the divide of West Germany and East Germany, and she snuck through the East Berlin Wall while she was being shot at by Russian soldiers. Boy, wow. I can't even imagine this. Mm-mm. I know it. She was snuck. Her her, her friend uh, hit her in the back of his EMT ambulance and the Russians found out and they were literally shooting at her. She had bullets, you know, hitting the vehicle. She snuck through. Now, even though she was safe and got to the other side, she decided, my mother, my family, there are still people on the other side who are not safe. So she snuck back into East Germany and smuggled her mother out. So she paid the the uh, the soldiers at the at the wall with cigarettes. That's how they allowed her to get through. She smuggled her own mother through. And so that's my heritage on my mother's side is this thick German, rich um, Polish. My grandfather was Polish and and Russian as well. And they eventually moved to Olympia, Washington, where they settled. And then that's where my mother was was raised from the fourth grade going forward. On my father's side, we call my grandmother on that side affectionately Big Mama. And that is a, an affectionate <laughs> name for the grandmother in the That's black right. community. And so a funny story about that, when I moved to Washington later in life, I called my German grandmother Big Mama because Big Mama to me meant grandmother. Right. Mm-hmm. And she told my mother, um, can you have her call me grandmother? <laughs> She wasn't feeling she it. She didn't up. like being called Big <laughs> Mama. mama. <laughs> so, but Big Mama that we refer to is the, you know the strongest black woman that I know. She right. raised fifteen mm. children. She birthed fifteen children wow. on her own. That and hurts me just to I, it, hurts. it hurts. It hurts. I'm sure it. she'd say it hurt her too. <laughs> but she raised fifteen children in the segregated South in Texas. It was actually in the rural in the. Um, central part of Texas, little country town, segregated town. And so she experienced segregation. You know, my my German grandmother uh, experienced a divided wall, 
right? And my my mm. black grandmother also experienced a division as well because the town was also split. There was segregation. Her oldest children went to segregated schools and she experienced firsthand racism and discrimination in that town and had to raise her children to be strong and to love who they are. And so that is the, um, the, the, the experience of my father being raised in that environment. And then he went on to the army and met my mother because he was eventually stationed in Fort Lewis, Washington, which is right sits next to Olympia. And then they met there on the dance floor. And wow. Soon after, here I came. <laughs> <laughs> You've been dancing ever since. You've been dancing right. ever since. <laughs> well, you use the term half-breed as a description of yourself, and also it is the title of your book. I was just curious, can you explain why you use that specific term and what it means to you? Yeah, that may be very controversial. Mm-hmm. Um so that term was used in the past. Traditionally, it was used to describe um, a person who was half white and half Native American. Right. But eventually um, half white and, and half African American as well. But it was a racist term. It was not an endearing term mm. um, to say you were half. You weren't a, a whole human. Right, Sarah? Absolutely. And so there have been other names that people of, of mixed race or mi- mixed ethnicity Thank you. Have been, yes. <laughs> There's only one race. So right. have been referred to from a racist, discriminatory, oppressive terminology. And so I didn't use the term to offend. I didn't use the term because I believed that I was less than or that I wasn't a whole person. Um, I used the term really to play off of what you'll find the core of the story is speaking of a of the Samaritan people group who were mixed breed. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were half, half and half. And I'm half and half. I'm half white and I'm half black. I love black. half and half. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Plus calories. <laughs> Doesn't always yeah. have to be bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was, it was sort of a, a playoff, but it was also bringing awareness to issues that we still have in our country. Mm-hmm. You know, we still have in this world, mm-hmm. and that is, uh, you know, a judgment, um, a discrimination, an oppression of people um, that don't look like us, that don't um, vote like us, that don't belong to our same tribe or our same religion. Mm-hmm. And um, ultimately, we're all mixed to some degree, mm-hmm. right? We're That's all right. mixed in whether it's our ethnicity or, you know, our life experiences. We're, we're all mixed. And so it's bringing light to um, several different things. You write of having experiences that are so multifaceted, lack to abundance, family roots in Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, and non-denominational churches. You attended 13 different schools in three different socially, politically, and economically diverse states, I can't (laughs) even imagine. And you say (laughs) that these experiences gave you the ingredients needed to reconcile our divided world. So, Can you tell me how all of that affected you and brought you to your divine destiny moment? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting because I didn't see it for myself until I wrote the book. And so if I go all the way back to the beginning, 1980 is when it all started. (laughs) (laughs) So my father, after the Army, worked for Boeing, And if anyone knows much about Boeing or that industry, they tend to hire and lay off every two to three years, depending on the economy. And so during the good years, there's good years. And during the bad years, there's bad years. Mm -hmm. And so that affected, that directly impacted our family dynamic. My my mother and father were raising a family of six. Mm -hmm. I'm the oldest of four girls. 
and they had four kids in six years. Wow. And so um, when I was two, so I was born in Seattle. Mm-hmm. When I was two, we moved to Houston, Texas, where I started kindergarten. And I went to kindergarten in Houston, in the inner city, um, fifth ward, third ward, I'm going to call out. And for those, that's more of your inner city projects area. When I was in first grade, we moved to Greenville. Greenville is the country rural area. And when I was in second grade, I moved six hours back uh, to the central Texas, and I lived with Big Mama for a year. All of those schools that I went to were mostly all inner city or rural black schools. Mm -hmm. So my classmates were mostly black and probably Mm -hmm. um, a lower level economic status. Okay. When I was in third grade, Boeing was hiring hiring again. So we moved back to Seattle, Washington. This is known as the Pacific Northwest. It's more democratic. Mm -hmm. It's more progressive. And it's more Caucasian, Asian, Middle Eastern. It's more international because it's more of a melting pot because it's on the coast uh, near California and near Japan, right? So the schools I went to there were more suburbia. They were more white, more democratic, like I said. And I lived there till I was in eighth grade. And also in Seattle, Washington, there's actually a high population of biracial couples. Mm-hmm. It is very common to find uh, white and black couples married, mm-hmm. producing mixed biracial children. Mm-hmm. So that was common for me to see and be around in my preteen, tween right. years. Okay, mm-hmm. When I was in eighth grade, my Boeing let off, uh, laid off again, so we moved to Lake Charles, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Now, if anybody's ever <laughs> been to or lived in Louisiana, let me tell you, it's a t- it, it's a totally different it place. It is and a different I love country. It. I love Lake it's Charles. It's a different so I love, country. I love it. That's I love right. It. <laughs> and I refer to it as tongue-twisting Cajuns live there, right? They, they speak a language we don't understand, That's and they right. eat food that have ingredients that don't exist anywhere in the yeah, world. And you don't want to know what it and is. you don't know how to pronounce or spell anything on the menu, right? And But it's phenomenal, it right? It is. It is awesome. When I moved to Louisiana, I met a people group that were just as light-skinned as I was, if not more light-skinned than myself, maybe even just as light-skinned as my white mother with gray eyes. Mm -hmm. And they refer to themselves as black. Oh, really? I didn't understand this because in my experiences up to this point, black people were chocolate brown and biracial people were caramel. Right, (laughs) right. And I I was going to school with students who were my color or my shade or lighter. They looked like my mother had blonde hair and even blue eyes. And they said, I'm black. Mm-hmm. They said they were black. And I and I would say, you're, you're mixed, right? And they said, no, I'm not mixed. I'm black. No, you you must be mixed, right? Like me, because <laughs> my mom's white. And that's why I'm, you know, this caramel color. Right. And you're light as me or lighter. And they would totally deny. In fact, this was 1995. And many of them, when they found out my mother was white, they were highly hostile towards me. They were racially opposed to me and my family having an interracial couple because at that time they felt like we don't mix. We don't mix. And I'm thinking, you know you didn't come that color from Africa, right? (laughs) You know there's been some mixing along the way. Like in my mind, I snap out of it. I don't understand what the denial (laughs) here is. Let's be practical. Let's be practical here, right? And so I didn't understand until years later Obviously, there was mixing, right? The Cajun, that's where it came from, you know, the influence of the of French, French coming mm-hmm. in and, and not through probably positive interactions, right? Mm-hmm. And so this people group was formed more so out of whether it was through rape or, um, uh, you know, 
the slave owners and, mm-hmm. and their slaves mixing Absolutely. and producing children. And so it wasn't talked about. And then there's, they have their own, you know, dynamic of, you know, if you have a drop of black blood, then you're black, even though you may be as light as my white mother, you know. So there was that whole dynamic going on there that I wasn't aware of because that wasn't the dynamic in Seattle. Mm-hmm. That wasn't even the dynamic in Houston, Texas. Well, that's got to be a recipe for confusion. Right. Yes. <laughs> Something you've never yeah. been exposed Something to I've before. Something I've never been exposed to before, right? And so then I moved back to all-white school in suburbia my sophomore year in high school. And I finish out in an all-white school. And I go from being... And in Louisiana, I went to a mostly all-black school that was a magnet school, then also a pretty mixed half and half. But then I go back to Washington, and it's an all-white high school all over again. In fact, I'm the only person of color and referred to as the black girl, even though I had a white mother. And so, you know, Texas was overwhelmingly Republican. Washington it was more libertarian, free, Democrat, liberal. Louisiana was Democrat at the time, and you know my 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 German grandmother was Catholic, my black grandmother was Methodist, my my parents were non-denominational, and I went to a Baptist church pretty much majority of my mid you know teen years, and so I also had was ex- exposed to those experiences as well the different denominations. When I went back to Washington, I also had you know when I was in my elementary years, I had best friends that were from um, Vietnamese, Japanese, mm-hmm. Chinese, uh, Middle Eastern. I had lived, we lived in um, uh, um, housing at the moment before we transitioned into finding our home where we lived among uh, Russians that had just come from Russia, Middle Middle East, and Vietnamese. And those were our neighbors. We didn't have white or black neighbors. I had Russian, Vietnamese, and Middle Eastern neighbors. And so we got to see those life experiences mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you say something so impactful to me, and actually you say a lot that's impactful, but... You say in the book that you did not live a black or white life. It was one life, Mm -hmm. a life that loves. Mm -hmm. And love compels us to fight against injustice. It is our responsibility. Can you define what that means to you specifically? You know, so how I was raised was that I had this white family and this black family, right, simplified. And so in those experiences, I would go to Big Mama's house and eat sweet potato pie for Thanksgiving. And I would go to Grandma's house and have pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving. And I'd go to Big Mama's house and we'd listen to blues and gospel and temptations. And then we'd go to Grandma's house and listen to Frank Sinatra and German music that I didn't understand. (laughs) And and, and then I'd go to Grandma's house and we'd have these German European cuisines. And then I'd go to Big Mama's house and we had amazing soul food. And so it was down to my DNA that I had lived this life of embracing both cultures. I was and. It wasn't an or. Right. And That's beautiful. the world mm-hmm. tried to define us growing up. Are you white or are you black? You know, pick one. Right. And, you know, whether it was through our school forms that we'd fill out every year that said your address, phone number, your race. And at that time in 1980, you had three choices, white, black, Hispanic. And so... My mother every year would fill out intentionally white slash black. She would write it in intentionally. She'd, she'd you know, bubble in the little bubbles and then write it in every year. But every single year, the forms would come back saying black, black, black. We never had the option. If we wanted to be white, we didn't even have the option to be white. Yet I'm half. I'm, I'm both, right? And so my mother and father went out of their way to continually remind us you're not white, you're not black, you're both, you're a person, you're who God created you to be. And that's who you need to 
uh, to stand up and be and not let the world define you by the color of your skin or your ethnicity. Right. I love the question that you have presented, the question we are all facing. Are we going to be a part of the problem or are we going to be a part of the solution? You know, this resumes. This resonates with me because I am a person that is very solution-oriented, yeah. and I get super frustrated when people are constantly focusing on the problem, but there's very little discussion about the, the resolution. Solution. That yes. frustrates me. Yes. So I was impressed, actually, that you broke the book down into three phases, the issue— yeah. The answer yeah. and the application. Yeah. And like you, I'm also very practical. <laughs> I like the keep it simple, sweetheart method. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So tell us how and why you lay out the book and structured it that way. Well, I think you just nailed it. Um, division, racism, um, you know, the, these problems, attention, the arguing, the fighting that we see in our country and the world, like you said, it's such a big topic. And we can sit around and talk about it all day long until we're blue in the face and we're just running in circles. And until we have some some solutions and know how to apply them, then nothing's ever going to change. And so I'm a practical person. And I remember I did a Bible study by Havila Cunnington, who uh, was out of Bethel in California, And I remember she said something that like changed my life. She said, practical things are spiritual things. Mm -mm. Mm, That's good. And so many times we think spiritual things are these big spiritual things and let's just stay in the spirit and, and, you know, philosophy about it. That's a word. (laughs) I just made one up. Um, You know, but how do we practically apply it and walk Mm -hmm. it out? Like our healing that we need, whatever the healing we need in our lives, we take the spiritual things, but we need to apply it and walk it out practically every day, like Monday through Friday, That's right. you know, not just on Sunday. And like, that was a great service. And now I don't know how to apply it Monday through Friday. And so I am a practical person. I am a doer and I need to know right. how to do it. Right. I need to know how to walk out the scripture right. every single day. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's why I broke it up into those phases. As, you know, and most people, you talk about this stuff and you want to run the other way because there's no, right. you feel like it's that too right. big. There's no solution to that's it. Right. So let's not even deal with it. Right. And that's part of it. If we're going to deal with it, you got to give me a recipe to walk it out. That's right. And it, the Bible is really, the scriptures are really a paradigm for living. Yes. And if you don't give somebody a roadmap, you know, to get out of this, right. yes. all it does is it breeds confusion and fear. And then what, what I see happening is people begin to either yell at each other or they isolate further. They withdraw right. further mm-hmm. right. because they're so intimidated by it. Right. They can't have a conversation because they don't know how. There's no you know? tools. No, right. that's exactly right. right. So within the context of the book, you provide your experiences, which include your faith. So how does the uniqueness of your life experience give you perspective regarding <laughs> your faith walk? Mm. Well, you know, it, it all comes down to our faith and what the Bible says, right? And so what I would say is, you know, life, your experiences, you can't argue your experience, right? right. We can argue over opinions and I can mm-hmm. argue and right. say, Sarah, I don't think you should wear red lipstick because mm-hmm. of my opinion or, mm-hmm. or, you know, there's too much dye in it or I don't believe this or I don't believe you should vote Democrat or I, I don't think you should vote Republican. We have all these beliefs, whether we should eat meat or not. I mean, we can argue to her blue in the face because there's no real right or wrong. 
It's right. subjective. Right. It's subjective. It Absolutely. Right. It's subjective. I like red lipstick, by the way. Yes. <laughs> I do too. And nail polish. Nail polish, yes. <clears throat> but you can't argue someone's experience saying that was right or wrong because that's their life experience, right? You can't. I, I, I am born of a white mother and a black father. Whether you, whether your opinion likes it or not, right. that's my experience. That's right. Absolutely. Right? And so I can also tell you what I've experienced being influenced by a Catholic grandmother or a Republican president when I lived in Texas or a Democratic governor when I lived in Washington and how it impacted my family. And when we share our life experiences, what it does is it creates compassion. Right. It creates empathy. It creates right. this bridge that if I'm on if I'm on the left side and you're on the right side and we have our different opposing opinions, but when we share our experience it breaks down that wall and mm-hmm. it creates this bridge because you may not have ever lived in the black ghetto, mm-hmm. Peggy. Right. But when I share the how it may produced either shame or pain, guess what? You can identify that with exactly pain right. or shame. Mm-hmm. You have empathy for that. That's right. And really, this came out of Sarah. She introduced me to this form referred to as living room conversations. And it was a safe place to come and have difficult conversations, which, you know, again, it's a tool. I'd never been introduced to that. And that's part of that midwife birthing that she's talking about. Mm -hmm. She introduced me to this and my eyes were open in that moment. If we spent more time sharing our life experiences rather than our opinions and our beliefs, we would get so much further. Mm -hmm. But here's the deal. I can share my life experience. It can create empathy in you and create this bridge but I actually have to move one step further and apply the Word of God. That's right. What does God right. say about this situation? Because the reality is I may have experienced shame, pain, rejection, abandonment, discrimination, racism, but what does God say about me? Mm-hmm. What does God say about my situation? What does He say about my healing and me overcoming mm-hmm. and who I am and what my identity is? The world's always going to present these obstacles that's going to... Um, make me um, question myself, my identity, my life experiences, and create a pity party potentially, right? But what does God say? And so really, that's where your faith comes in. What does the Word of God say about me, my situation, and what's going on? And that's where um, we walk through in the book as well. That's beautiful. Well, I want to go back to something in your sophomore English class (laughs) that impacted you because you had a moment Mm -hmm. that honestly, when I was reading it, I thought, wow, if she had totally internalized that, we wouldn't be sitting here today having this conversation about this book. So I'd like you to share with the audience what happened to you in your sophomore English class. So I'll back up to my freshman year. Okay, I attended a magnet school my freshman year in Lake Charles, Louisiana. I received A's in all of my classes. I then move across the country to a middle-class neighborhood and attend the English class, which I proceed to receive a D in English. Oh, I hadn't changed. My behaviors hadn't changed. My understanding hadn't changed. But there was something different. Right. Right. And so there is obviously a difference in resources and some issues at hand, you know, in our country where it's not all equal across the board. Mm -hmm. And so um, I walk into my English class and my teacher is speaking to the class of how not to write a paper. That was the day's lesson, how not to write a paper, what not to do. 
and the overhead projector, which students today don't know what that is, but there's an overhead projector <laughs> and she had a, what do you call it? A transfer or whatever the plastic mm-hmm, paper now mm-hmm. is. She had it on there and it was a copy of my English, my latest English paper that I had just written. And she proceeds to read from my paper and share examples of how not to write properly an English paper. Not only is she teaching this, but she's making fun of it. And the class in return is also making fun and they're both laughing. So that was my experience in the 10th grade. Well, I would say to you that God was up there looking at that and really did not like that at all. So he just said, just because you did that, I'm going to download some stuff to this lady. And she is going to get the story on what to do with a really important issue. And she will have the last laugh. Yes, and you can take that to the bank, sweetheart. That's That's what I see happening. That's right. Wow, that is, you know what? That's tough. That is really tough, that kind of public humiliation. absolutely. uh, Mm -hmm. It could have stopped you. I mean, I know it hurt you. I'm sure it probably affected you. It, it did you. for time, for yes. a long time, right? So that goes back to your faith and going back to God and, and having me forgive and rem- rem- have him remind me who I am. And um, absolutely, I would say into well into my adult years that even when I was in leadership and management positions in my company, that was, always, that was still ringing into the back of my head that I didn't know how to speak or pronounce words or write. And so I would literally cancel meetings at the last second with my team because that fear factor would would jump up. So absolutely, that 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 was scarring for years. Well, Leticia, how did you get over that? What happened? Did you did God just heal you, or what happened? Uh, I have a very good friend who confronted me and that reminded me that I had I had aligned my my thinking with the lie of the enemy. That is so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so important. I was talking to my daughter about yeah. this today. That you have to think about what you're thinking about. That's yeah. right. And if it doesn't work, and if it doesn't line up with what God says, you have to be disciplined enough to say, "I, I'm not accepting that. Absolutely. I don't accept that." Well, I'm so glad you didn't accept it. Absolutely. But, um, I, uh, I also was interested because you went to graduate college, went into the insurance business mm-hmm. where you met James, which we talked about before. Yes who was also biracial, and you attended law school. So tell us first a little bit about James' parents and his background, and then you had an experience in law school because that was what you were determined to do, and God had different plans. So share a little bit about that. Yes. So the story actually goes that I was planning to go to law school. Oh. Yes. And so um, I had planned my entire life. When I say entire life, at the age of six, <laughs> I made up my mind at the age of six, I was going to be a lawyer. Really? What did wow. you watch Perry Mason on? I watched Perry Mason. I watched Matlock. Matlock. Every day after school special at three o'clock was Matlock. And I promised you I watched every episode and I took notes on how I was going to win in court. That is wonderful. That's so a scream. I, I decided I was going to be a lawyer at the age of six. And so I lived my life in a way that I was going to um, achieve that goal. Meaning in elementary, I was already writing my resume so that thinking colleges were going to be asking me, what did you do in the fifth grade? So in the fifth grade, the sixth grade, I'm writing down, I was on the AV equipment team and I worked on (laughs) lunch cart duty and safety patrol. I kept a resume in the fifth grade, sixth grade, going on seventh, eighth, ninth, and, you know, worked my tail off. So even though I got a D in English my sophomore year, I mean, I worked so hard 
um, took every extracurricular activity. I was in sports, volleyball, basketball, ran track, every extra, I mean, every award I could go after, I went after because I knew that's what it, that's what I needed to overcome my circumstances. And my, my, both my, I would, I would have been the first grandchild on both sets of family members that would have gone to college. Wow. And so I was also doing it for them. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I was doing it for them. I was doing it to prove to the world that in, despite what the world had tried to label or limit my family members, that I was going to overcome for them as well. Mm-hmm. And so I work hard through college. I mean, I I decided at that point too, I'm not going to get off track. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to do drugs. I'm not doing anything experimental because I'm going to be a lawyer and I can't have that on my resume. And so um, I, I run track in college. I actually tore my ACL right before college. And that was my plan to pay for college because that was how I was going to have to pay was through a scholarship. Tore my ACL right before college started. So I was devastated in that because that was my plan, you know, to pay for college. And I ended up walking onto the team, ended up running faster than all my teammates on my relay team and earning a scholarship, full scholarship wow. from that point forward. That's incredible. And mm-hmm. so my plan was, okay, law school. That's my next goal. Now, Undergrad, I actually wanted to attend Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford. Those were the type of schools, Ivy League. That's where I'm going because that's where I had my my mindset to. And I didn't get in an undergrad. And that was probably one of, you know, there are many disappointments leading up to that point in life, but that was one of my first major disappointments that I didn't achieve what I felt like I was supposed to achieve based on all the hard work I'd been putting in since I was six. That's right, right, right. right, right. (laughs) And so I didn't get into my college of choice and I got into the local university, University of Washington, which I had a great experience there, but it's not where I wanted to go. It's not, it wasn't on my A-list, you know? And so... Call uh, law school came, and I was not a good standardized test taker. So the SAT I did terrible on. Like the more times I took it, the worse it got. No, oh, no. And so at the time <laughs> I didn't know why. Right? right? I didn't yeah. know why at the time I didn't do well. I mean, I knew I had a lot of nerves, and I was nervous, and I'd freeze up for a while. But it wasn't until later in life that made me think, wait a minute, I went to thirteen different schools in three different states, and just the instability, and just you know, even in the school systems not Absolutely. being equal. That obviously that had to have impacted me. You know, it wasn't like I had was always going to a college prep school and. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that happened again for law school. The LSAT I did terrible on, and I did not get into law school. I didn't get into any law school that I applied to. I didn't get to any of the Ivy League schools that I applied to. And that was crushing. When I mean crushing, I mean devastating, crushing, because I only had one goal in life, to become a lawyer. That was my A plan. There was no B, C, D. It wasn't even the A plan. It was the plan. A plan means there's a B or C or D. Right. There, there were no other plans. That was who I was. That was going to be my identity. That was going to be my, you know, I finally conquered. And I conquered it for grandma who overcame, you know, eat, fighting going through the wall of East Germany. And right. it was going to be what I conquered for big mom of raising those 15 kids in the segregated South. And so it was going to be what I conquered for my mom and dad who Gosh, didn't no have the opportunity <laughs> to go right. to college, you know, and it was going to be for my sisters who were watching after me. I'm the oldest and firstborns always take right. on the responsibility, lead by example. And so I was going to be the family lawyer and I didn't get in. And I felt like the biggest failure in the entire world. I felt like I let God down. I let my family down. I let my sisters down. I felt like I had let the world down. So then I kind of felt like I was just wandering through life after that for a good amount of time because there was no other plan. I didn't know really know who I was. Well, you have all of these identity 
challenges yeah. you know thrown at you you know people not accepting you because yeah. you're biracial mm-hmm. and then you have uh, the experiences of not getting into law school the way you yeah. wanted to and feeling the yeah. pressure from everybody else and some teacher telling you what a poor writer you are i mean yeah. there's so many attacks on you yeah. to really um, destroy your self-esteem yeah. and get you to the place where you're accepting someone else's um, description, mm-hmm. label mm-hmm. for you. Absolutely. And yet here you sit as this woman who is confident and beautiful and... <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, oh, and with you. this book that is just literally life-changing. Thank you. But you had one experience you wrote about that actually broke my heart. <laughs> and I want you to address it too yeah. because of my personal situation with my, my little kids. I have to tell you that when I read about the black coworker who was apparently a fairly intimate friend for at least yeah. six years. And she blatantly looks you in the face and says, I don't believe black and white people should mix to produce children. Yeah. I mean, yeah. is, are there times, honestly, where you just want to smack some people <laughs> upside the head? You know, because I look yes. at that and I'm not you, I'm not even in your space. Yeah. And I would be like, oh, no, you did not say that to me. Yeah. You know, that makes me mad. So yeah. what do you do with stupidity? I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, what... You know, what I probably would have done with many of those things in the past is different than now because, you know, I'm a little bit more (laughs) mature. (laughs) You know, um, at that moment in time, if I'm honest, and I write about this, I felt what what she said to me, you know, because when we hear someone say something, it translates to us, right? Translates through maybe our heart or whatever, our life experience. What it translated to me, she said to me was, I don't believe you should have ever been born. That is heartbreaking. That's what I heard her say in that moment. And it took everything in me. I couldn't even be angry. Like, I just, because it was so, I was so emotional. It took everything in me not to burst out in tears because she was a friend. I know. She was a friend. I I looked up to her. I looked at her as a friend. And for her to tell me that she didn't believe that white and black shouldn't make children, I'm looking at her like, you know, I'm... That's me, right? You know right. who I am. You know that I am a child of a, of a biracial relationship. And in essence, you just told me I should have never been born. That was heartbreaking. Well, you have overcome so much. And the thing that I love about you, Letitia, is in spite of all the hurtful things and the scars and the journey, you are so sweet and you are so loving. <laughs> right. And I know that has a lot to do with the Jesus in you. So you came Thank to you. Dallas yes. and you started going to a church that yes. was we've all been to. <laughs> yes. And uh, yes. It, it changed a lot for you. So yes. would you just share about what that experience did to refine you, refine your perspectives yes. of things? What yes. Tell us about it. Absolutely. So my husband and I moved to Dallas, Texas because of work. And it's the year 2002. Now, my husband's family is biracial also. My husband is also mixed, and he's mixed brothers and sisters, and they all have completely different eye color. One is hazel, one's gray, one's green, one's blue. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they, you know, so we we come from, and he too has, you know, siblings that are, are, are black and white and cousins, and so we're used to just the hodgepodge family events, right? And the church we'd gone to in Seattle also was biracial family pastors, and their children were mixed, and so the church was very um, interracial. So we come to Dallas and we're looking for a church and we're excited because we're going to find a church together. And six months go by and every church we walk into was either completely white 
are completely black. Every single one of them. And we just never felt at home. We, we, in essence, we felt like, you know, if we were to bring our family here, my mom, my dad, mm-hmm. my cousins, right. oh my goodness. they wouldn't even be welcome here. Yeah. They wouldn't feel welcome. Whether or not they were welcome, we, right. would they feel welcome? And that just wasn't what we felt like heaven reflected. Right. Heaven isn't all white and it's not all black. And so we kept looking. And finally, um, we had the guy who's putting the blinds in our home told us about this church. And we were like, okay, we're trying to find this church. And this sounds crazy, but in 2002, the internet search wasn't all that great. And so no matter how many ways I typed in Covenant Church, I couldn't find it. I think I was typing covenantchurch.com. And as silly as that sounds, like it really didn't go to covenantchurch.org. So I couldn't find this. And so he told us, he said, hey, I, I can tell you guys are believers. You know, you're looking for a church. It's great worship. And we're like, yeah. Which we thought was weird because we moved from Seattle and people in Seattle don't really talk about church like that. So um, so months go by and I finally have a friend who happens to be, she's white and her husband's black. They live in Houston. And I said, Shelly, we, we, James and I cannot find a church. We're looking for a church. And she says, well, Roswell, her husband, he went to, he was in a, a Christian fraternity with, um, and his brother plays the piano at this church in Carrollton, Texas called uh Covenant Church, Arlington Jones' brother. Oh, yes. I okay. love Arlington. And I'm I like, Arlington. Covenant Church? That's who the guy said months ago. We're, we've been looking for this. So she gives me the address, and James and I go. We walk in on a Sunday. Well, I actually went for my, by myself the first Sunday because he was out of town. I go. I walk in. I don't remember what the sermon was. I don't remember whether or not parking lot or the lobby was clear. I don't remember anything, any of that. I walk in, and I see a sea of hands raised worshiping their father in heaven and they were white and they were black and they were Hispanic and they were Indian and they were every color of the rainbow. It was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. It was heaven on earth. And not only was it ethnically different and culturally different, it was also generational. Mm -hmm. I saw an elderly white man raising his hands, worshiping with tears next to a young boy from India who was a teenager sitting next to each other. Right. Mm-hmm. And in many churches, they they separate, you know, right. the traditional right. from the contemporary, right. you know, right. but it's generationally, we're separating people. It was generationally united. It was culturally united. It was politically united. I mean, every tongue and nation was represented in that service. And I said, this is my home. And I bring James the next week. We don't even talk about any of it. He walks in and sees the exact same thing. It was our home. And that's where I met Sarah. Mm-hmm. So that makes it all special anyway. Absolutely. <laughs> Speaking of Sarah. Finding community. Yes. Peggy, what you said, not only was it, you know, finding community and was reflecting heaven on earth. What moved me, what you said too, is how did you find even your healing from my childhood is mm-hmm. it was the word of God. Right. The mm-hmm. word of God then right. that was preached on healing, overcoming no matter whatever your circumstances right. or rejection, abandonment, right. discrimination, mm-hmm. race, racism right. came from the word of God. The answer is Jesus. He came to set the captives free. Right. So my healing in all areas of my life came through the word of God. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what'll do it. Well, speaking of uh, ladies who run and race, I am going to pass the baton (laughs) to my dear friend, Sarah. And she's going to visit with you a little bit about some other things, but it's been great. Go ahead, Sarah. Well, I've just enjoyed revisiting, you know, your story and hearing Mm -hmm. again 
all of the amazing life experiences that you had. And as I was even reading the book and, and thinking about this time, I was there were a lot of different kind of questions, I mm-hmm. think, that hit me this time around. Yeah. And one of them was, of course, we've been talking about your faith. We've been yeah. talking about your experience. Yeah. But I'm wondering, why did you write the book Half-Breed <laughs> to believers? Yeah. Even though there's not a lot of secular books out there yeah. written by Half breeds, right? Right. Um, and there's not in the Christian world either. And yeah. so I just think, thought it was really interesting that even when we were talking early, you kept, you were very emphatic mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. the book that I'm writing mm-hmm. is not for everyone, it's for the church. Yeah. And so why, why? Yeah. <laughs> why? So um, the journey of me writing this book came in Jan- my birthday's in January the beginning of the year I typically pray and say okay God what's my word for this year and this was 2018 January and it had it had come really right after I'd already been asking the question what is the answer for this division that we see in our country and our culture because that was right after 2017 that ironically looked like a, a lot like 2020 where you have the uh, political division and all the just the chaos and um just the tension we see on, on social media, et cetera. Um, it had just happened after a, a, a change in the uh, political regime in our country. And it was just a lot of fighting, arguing, family, friends. It just was awful. Now, we just repeated that in 2020, unfortunately, right? And so I'd been praying, God, what's your answer? What's your answer? What's your answer? And he told me, write this book. I didn't know what was going to be in the book. I just heard him say, write the book. Now, of course, Peggy, I was saying, wait a minute, God, you, rem- oh, you know yes. who I am, right? Yes, like, you, we did the same thing. You remember what happened to me in 10th grade, grade right, right? Right. And he said, write this book. And he told me, research the Samaritan people. That's all I knew. And so I proceed over the next several months, in essence, to research the Bible from the beginning to the end on every single time Samaria, Samaria, Samaritan people are ever mentioned. And in essence, that research becomes the body of this book. And it is the Samaritan people are a half-breed ethnicity. They were half Jewish and half uh, the surrounding locals, Assyrian and whatever other people group were around. And what created was this tension, this racial ethnic tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, which um, you know many of us know about. Many of us don't know about, but... It was God who led me through this journey of the Samaritan people that there was so much tension, so much hatred, so much um, division, whether it was politically, culturally, racially, or religious. And this this happened between these two people groups for almost 750 years, almost 900 years before Jesus walked the earth. And then what, what, then what takes a turn in the, in the Bible, so you go from the Old Testament of the division and, you know, it, it, if you called, uh, the, the Pharisees called Jesus a Samaritan dog, that was a racial slur to right. them. Wow. Mm-hmm. When the Jews came back to rebuild the wall, um, it, it was the Samaritans and Arabs that actually opposed them so that they couldn't rebuild the wall. There was a point where Jews were told, if you married a Samaritan wife, you need to divorce her. So there was all kind of tension. And the Samaritans actually ended up building their own place of worship in a different place in Jerusalem. And that's when Jews really like went off, you know, that there, there's this uh, religious, you know, tension between us too. And so Jews, would, when they traveled from 
Galilee down to Jerusalem, they would actually go around Samaria because there was just that much tension between them. Jesus walks the earth. One of the first things he does is he meets the Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus, through his ministry in essence, set the captives free, right? right? And it was to his disciples that he tells, go and preach the, the gospel to every nation and tongue. But he specifically names Samaria. He named Samaria the place of division, the place of oppression, the place of prejudice. The, pre- the place of the half-breed. The place right. of the half-breed. And once they were united there in Jesus, once they were united there in the in the gospel, then the church actually started to spread to the Gentile world. And so the answer that God really revealed to me is it has to start with the church. Jesus, one of Jesus' last prayers before he yes, goes to the right. cross. Yes, I love that is John 17, mm-hmm. and he prays for unity, for you, for me, with each other, right. to be the same as the unity between Jesus and God the Father. That was one of his very last prayers, in essence. And why? Why did he pray for unity? So that the world would know that Jesus came. Boom. Okay. Right. If the church is not operating in unity, the world will not know that Jesus came. That's good. That kind of just sums it all up, doesn't it? Yeah. And by this shall all men know that you're my, you're my disciples. disciples. By the way, Absolutely. you love one another. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we're failing at that big time. Absolutely. And uh, we're, the concentration is too much on how we differ from one another. Yes. And right. the fact that God's spirit is within us. And that's Absolutely. what makes us one. It's Absolutely. him. He makes us one. Absolutely. It's definitely, you know, the beauty, the beauty of the book is that it's eye-opening on so many different levels. It is. And I think, you know, as you said, the word coming to the church, there's not a lot of, there hasn't been a lot of talk until late, as of yes. late, yes. about what our responsibility is right. in the kingdom as it pertains to race. Yes. And not that this is a, a race or an ethnically charged, you know, right. but because it, right. it reaches beyond Political, as you said, financial and everything. Gender, absolutely. Um, I love the book because um, I'm one of those people that when I first hear um, one thing, when I hear one thing, you hooked me in the introduction. (laughs) You you hooked me (laughs) in the introduction. And that was, if I can look back on it, yeah. I will have to say that that is my favorite part mm-hmm. of the book because it took my head in a completely different place. Wow! And um, if you would please yes. just do us the honors of just reading, um, what is it, about half of the introduction to yes. the book. absolutely. Who is better, black or white? It was 1985 in Houston, Texas, and I was about four or five years old. I do not remember the specific conversation leading up to the question or what prompted this this discussion. If I had said something inappropriate or if something life-defining was shown on TV, maybe we saw an interaction between neighbors. What I do know is my daddy is a good father. He was about to prepare me for a life lesson I would not forget for the next three decades. It would form the very foundation of the person I was to become, including the author of this very book. Tisha, who is better, black, or white? My dad asked me. I clearly remember my thoughts at the time. This is an obvious answer to me. So I answered without hesitation, white. I said, he turned around and spanked me. 
he asked me again, who is better, black or white? What he wanted me to say seemed even more obvious to me now, so I responded, black. He turned me around and spanked me again. He asked me a third time, who is better, black or white? Neither, I answered. Correct, he said. That memory has never left me. It gave me a deep understanding that neither was better or worse. I was not white and I was not black. I was both. When I share that story, it brings me to tears. It was a life-defining moment that set the trajectory of that child forever. My father had a unique opportunity allow me to step into bondage or encourage me to walk in freedom. His question was an invitation to break free from hatred, prejudice, or offense and declare the freedom that Martin Luther King Jr. and so many others marched for and that Jesus Christ ultimately died for. If I had not received the power of that message in the depths of my heart and soul that day as a child, perhaps today I would not be writing a book sharing the recipe for our nation to walk in unity, love, and compassion. The lesson I learned that day would last me a lifetime. Well, that's just riveting. (laughs) It it is riveting. It is riveting because I believe that it sets the tone for the entire book. It does. There were so many nuggets in that piece. When your father said, who is better, Mm -hmm. black or white, Mm -hmm. he was really, really asking you Mm -hmm to find yourself, identify with who you are at the core. And when we hear the story about all of the opportunities that came your way, negative opportunities where the enemy was trying to steal Mm -hmm. your identity, steal your self-worth, he was speaking against everything that you were, when you had somebody Mm -hmm. so close to you look at you Mm -hmm. and basically send you the message, you shouldn't even be here. Mm -hmm. That whole purpose of who is better, black or white. And when you even talk about your father in that passage, Mm -hmm. you said, my father is a good father. Mm -hmm. Yes. And as I was reading it the second time through, (laughs) it was as if, the Father God yes. was standing in front of the yes. church, right, <laughs> right, saying, "Who mm, is better?" better. Mm. That's beautiful. Black or white, rich mm. or poor, yes, young or old, male yes. or female, male or female, yeah. wealthy or you know, yes. you, it's just it stops you in your tracks. Yeah, and it makes you identify with where mm. we came from. Yes. We have been made in the image of God. That's right. And so to say who is better, I can't look at you and <laughs> I can't look at you in the face and say that you're better. I or or yeah. I'm better. Yes. And I think that that was such a beautiful piece and as you began yeah. to unfold the story of the good Samaritan, mm-hmm. it was so powerful because I think as readers Right, we're mm-hmm. always looking for places where we can identify. Right. Yeah, and when we go through that story of the good Samaritan, yes, am I the one in the pit? Yes. Am I the lawyer? Yes. Am I the priest? Yes. Am I the right? Yes. And we're always looking for that place to identify. But yeah. you did a beautiful job, and just as we were Thank speaking you. here today, um, I thought it was very ironic. 
that it was the lawyer who was having the problem. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, yes! Wow. I thought it was so ironic. Wow. I never thought of that. <laughs> that it was the lawyer, the thing that you wow. aspired yes. to be the most. Wow. That is having this conversation with Jesus. Yes. And he's asking, <laughs> right? Wow. Um, you know, what what the greatest commandment is, yes. and Jesus is sharing with them to love your father, yes. you know, with all your, love God, with all yes. your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor, neighbor as yourself. Yes. And it just, it just hit me. And it was just so yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I have a thought for you because, you know, when we get into this discussion around um, neighbor, who's my neighbor? Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, and why don't you just share just a little bit about the revelation that you share in the book around the reason why he asked? Yeah. So, in the traditional Jewish culture, another Jew was traditionally defined as your neighbor, mm-hmm. not another nation, country, a, a Gentile. Um, and so, when he was asking, "Well, who's my neighbor?" Um, you know, how how we looked at it was, in essence, who can I exclude? Who am I allowed to not love? Mm-hmm. I don't have to love everyone. I'm comfortable loving someone that looks like me. Mm-hmm. I'm comfortable with someone who's in the same church as me or denomination or political party as me. I'm okay with loving someone else my same ethnicity, but I'm not okay with extending that love outside of my comfort zone, mm-hmm. right? And so you have this lawyer saying, well, who's my neighbor? In essence, who can I exclude? Right, Mm -hmm. right. And what I thought was so compelling about that is when you look up the word neighbor, it's anything or person who is in near proximity to you. So if you are in your house, your neighbor (laughs) is the person who lives next to you or down the street. If you are at work, Mm -hmm. it is the coworker that sits next to you. Mm -hmm. If you are in the grocery store, Mm -hmm. it is the person who's picking up the carrots right Mm -hmm. next to you or the person who is checking you out. And the reality of it is everybody that is in your close proximity is your neighbor, regardless of their age, their color, their, you know. And so it's a very, when you talk about it starting with the church, mm-hmm. the expectation that God has of mm-hmm. us, and Jesus so well exemplified, mm-hmm. is wherever he went. Yes, that's right. He was touching his neighbor. He was yes. healing his neighbor. Absolutely. He was healing those who were around him, and right. that's a huge mandate. Absolutely. That's a great expectation. Absolutely. Ooh. That is a beautiful expectation. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I love what you said uh, is the answer. And this is what you said. When you see hurt or injustice, you can do nothing or you can do something. Mm -hmm. Either one reveals your true faith. What did each character do in the parable? The lawyer discussed, the thieves exploited, the religious men ignored and avoided, the innkeeper served for a fee, the Samaritan went out and served, and then you said, go and do. Yeah. The question is... Who do you want to be? Because unconditional love is deliberate, it's intentional, and out of our comfort zone, which Mm -hmm. was what Sarah was talking about. The salvation and reconciliation of lives does not happen without you Mm -hmm. and me. Mm -hmm. And that's your beautiful, beautiful message. 
The question to us is, are you willing to be bold and courageous to communicate and collaborate with people you historically have not had a good relationship with? Will you be bold enough to be one of the first to do this in your family, your community, your church, and possibly under spiritual and physical persecution? Mm. So, would you talk about this as we conclude? In order for unity to take place, you say there are three elements that are necessary to open the eyes to the gospel, to accept it, and to lay down your defenses and offenses. Would you elaborate on that? Yeah, so what's so beautiful about God leading me to the Samaritan is so multifaceted, like Sarah said. But ultimately, we can all identify with pain, rejection, oppression in some form or fashion. And it wasn't the priest in the parable that Jesus used to create reconciliation. You know, the the man of God, the spiritual leader Mm -hmm. or the Levite. It wasn't the lawyer who was educated, but it was the Samaritan who was looked down upon by the audience that's reading this parable. And so the, the Samaritan can represent someone whose family had been looked down upon, discriminated, oppressed for generations, not just you know, a couple of weeks, but generations. And it was the Samaritan that saw this hurting man laying in a ditch. And this hurting man laying in the ditch likely was Jewish, which again goes to that they would have been spiritually, racially, right? maybe politically, you know, theologically opposed to one another. And it was the Samaritan that laid down his own defenses, his own offenses, his own pride, his own humility, his own forgiveness to say, I'm going to go help this person, this man, this, um, what they represent. And I'm going to be willing to lay all that to the side, create a bridge, and I'm going to help them. And I'm going to not only just help them, but I'm going to put them up on my donkey. I'm going to use my resources. I'm going to use my provision. I'm going to use, you know, I'm going to be sacrificial into leading to healing. So he takes him to the end. He uses his own money to make sure this man is healed. And then he says, when I come back, he's not, it's long-term. It's not just short-term like, okay, I'm going to just throw some money at the situation and walk in, let somebody else deal with it. But he was committed to this process of healing, this reconciliation, And ultimately, that's what Jesus does. And that's what he's asking for us to do with the ministry of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Second Corinthians 5.12, I believe it is. It says we all, we carry the ministry, the message of reconciliation, Reconciliation. right? To be healed and hold one with Jesus. When we accept Jesus as Lord, we are now reconciled to him, now to God. We now carry that ministry with us. So anytime we see anyone who's not healed and whole, whether it's because they've been abandoned by a husband, whether they've been rejected by a father, or their people group have been discriminated against for generations. It is our job as ministers of the, that carry the ministry of reconciliation to walk and help that person be healed and whole in Jesus. And if I can just break that down, what you said a little bit deeper in regards to your book and how it's written is, you know, we talked earlier about the fact that we use the term racism, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But there's really only one race, race. and that is the human race. And it's easy for us to 
to use the term the world uses to yes, divide us. That's right. Because there's one race and there's many ethnicities and many nations. Yes. And so when I'm hearing the word racial reconciliation, it doesn't vibe with me That's right. correctly. Me mm-hmm. But what it does vibe with mm-hmm. is our responsibility mm-hmm. as believers mm-hmm. to reconcile the yes. human race yes. That's right. back to God. Yes. That's right. That's and beautiful. what we are experiencing yes. are prejudgments and prejudices yes. against different nationalities yes. and different ethnicities where we feel that we can place value or devalue right. people. But it's a very different terminology, Mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can get to the place where when we talk about racial reconciliation, we're really talking about the Great Commission. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And when we start talking about the problems we have in our communities, that it's between nations and ethnicities, and really be clear on that, that's where we begin the process of re-educating ourselves and re-educating others around us and saying, yes, we are ministers of reconciliation, the human race to God. And once we get that right, Yes. The changing of the hearts towards I one another that, will Sarah. change. I love that That's so beautiful. much. And what you asked earlier is when Jesus came, he said there is no Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, That's right. male or female. That was the reconciliation that when he came to set the captives free, whatever bondage you have because you've been oppressed because of a woman or because of your ethnicity or because of your social class, he destroys all of that. Yep. And that's why it starts with us, the church, and why we have to— we cut have to continue to set the captives free. And I know this podcast is listening to, what, 66 countries, right? So it's bigger than a black or white issue outside of maybe America, but it may be a tribal issue or a classism issue issue or Mm -hmm. a a woman, a gender issue, right? But again, the the ministry of reconciliation is to reconcile the human race back to Jesus. That's right. Amen. Well, Letitia... I want to thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. And it is obvious that the Lord has called you for such a time as this. You are unique, beautiful inside and out. And to me, you are the embodiment of what is the best of both black and white. (laughs) What is inside you represents a merging of two distinct cultures, not warring against one another, Mm. but a beautiful blend. Together, you are a mix of what is right about us collectively. I believe that you are a picture of what God wants to do in us and for us. Because as you said, the last prayer that Jesus prayed before he ascended into heaven was that we would be one even as he and the Father were one. And that's quite a request yes. when you think about it. That's a oneness in yes. intimacy. I can I can hardly fathom that mm. actually what that would be what that would look like. Well, we can't ever be one as long as we define each other by the aspects of ourselves that God cares the least about. Mm -hmm. I believe that we're to be grateful for our unique heritage, the blessings of our ancestors. Mm -hmm. We're to appreciate our own individuality, and we must seek to right wrongs and stand for truth and justice. But that being said, I believe we will heal our division and hurt when we begin to see ourselves with one heart, one mind, and one, as you said before, as one race. That's right. The human race. Mm -hmm. We are human beings Mm -hmm. that share common human experiences. You cut us, we bleed. Yes. 
We laugh, we cry, we long for love, we mm, hurt. That's good. And no matter who we are, when we stop seeing each other as human beings, well, frankly, we're just capable of doing anything to anybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. God says we are fearfully, as you said, and wonderfully made, each of us. I see mankind, this is my personal view, <laughs> as an English garden. That's my favorite kind of garden, mm -hmm. is an yes. English garden, <laughs> you know? All kinds of flowers growing together, each unique, colorful varieties, textures, and hues. They don't compete with each other. They mm -hmm. complement yes. one another. Well, God gives me a scripture or a picture for our guests. It is a representation of your unique gift that you have shared with us today. So, Letitia, you to me are the breath of God. Mm. When God made Adam, he breathed life into him and he became a living soul. It is the breath of God that gives us life. And when we stop breathing for an extended period of time, well, the obvious happens, we die. In my opinion, in general, the vast majority of us in the year 2020, no matter who we are, we're having trouble breathing mm. right now. Some can't breathe because they feel oppressed, some because they feel trapped by unfair circumstances or unjust treatment. Some can't breathe because they are victims of the past, trapped in bitterness, resentment, or unforgiveness. Some are trapped in their own bigotry, hatred, or need for revenge, because what we've understood is bigotry doesn't really have a color. Mm -hmm. A lot of us are having trouble breathing in one way or another. And then there's you. You wow. stand in the middle between both black and white, and you don't seek to minimize the problem, but you point to the solution. And through you and your words, God is once again breathing mm. life into us. He is resuscitating us through you. He is breathing forgiveness, and he's mm. breathing peace and healing and reconciliation and hope, and most important of all, his love. As he breathes through you to us, we come to terms with our own humanity and we begin to see one another through his eyes. Each one of us loved so much that he was willing to sacrifice his only son, valuable, unconditionally loved, mm. worthy. Mm. I bless you today. Thank you, I received that. My sweet friend, Godspeed on your journey. Thank you. May he carry you on angel's wings throughout the world to spread the message of his love that knows no bounds and can overcome any divide. As we close, would you please pray for those who are listening in all 66 mm, countries yes. by the Spirit of God that he will breathe his life mm. into us. Yes, absolutely. Father in heaven, creator of the heavens and the earth, creator of every nation, every tongue, every person listening to this, Lord, you created them for such a time as this, Lord. You gave them a purpose. You planned them in their mother's womb. You gave them a purpose here on earth. You love them, Lord. Father, we just pray that we receive from you, Lord, the instructions from heaven, Lord. Give us a, even if it's a new language, Lord, just like you did in Acts, Lord, in the, with the church. Lord, a new tongue, a new, a new language to speak, Lord, of reconciliation, 
of understanding, of unity, of peace, Father. May every person listening, Lord, be convicted, Lord God, to walk out reconciliation, which is writing ourselves, the human race, back to Jesus, back to God, Lord. May our hearts be touched, Lord God, to be in one, oneness, Lord, of one accord, likeness of mind, to give us new solutions, new ways to walk in unity, new ways of listening, new ways of understanding, Father. Ultimately, Lord, that we understand that you are coming back for your bride one day, Lord, and that we are part of that process. You have entrusted us, Lord, to walk this earth, Father, to be a light in a city on a hill, to give hope and give light in this time that we have here on earth, Father. So I pray, Lord, that we advance the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven, Father God. And we do that by locking arms hand in hand, Lord God, that we stand in the gap. We we hold up the, as we hold up the gates, Lord God, the breach, the gap that is here, Lord God, to protect your church, to advance your the body, the kingdom of God. May we be in one, Lord God. May we love one another, sacrificial love, not preferring one another, Lord God, but loving, going out of our comfort zone to love people that don't look like us or act like us, Father, because that is a mandate from heaven. It is unity, Lord God. Give us all the spirit just to, the, the um, just the conviction of unity, Lord. Help us to walk that out and see it in a way that we've never seen it before, Father. Open our eyes, open our ears, so that we can be an influence, your church can be an influence here on earth, Father, to advance the kingdom. Lord, may our light continue to expand here on earth, Father. We thank you for all the reconcilers. We thank you for all those walking in unity, Lord God. May your church arise. May your church answer this call, Lord, this great call. The world is so divided, so confused, and so much chaos, they're looking for hope. The hope is in you, Lord, and we have the answer. We have the solution. May we provide hope in our community. May we provide hope to our neighbors. May we answer the call, Father, and may we walk in peace in that time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, boy, it's hard for me to keep it together. That was just something... I just thank you so much. This has been a powerful segment, and uh, I trust that it has blessed our listeners, encouraged yes. you, challenged mm. you. Thank you, Letitia. Thank you. Please pick up the book, Half Breed, by Letitia Wheeler. She is also an amazing speaker. If you are looking for someone to share the message on racial healing, her story is compelling and is life-changing. Why don't you tell everyone where they can contact you? Yes. So you can contact me on uh, Instagram, at Letitia Wheeler. Or you can uh, go to my website, LeticiaWheeler.com. Now that spelling is different, so I'm going to spell it for you. <laughs> L-E-T-E-S-H-A Wheeler, W-H-E-E-L-E-R, LeticiaWheeler.com or at Leticia Wheeler. That is awesome. And of course, I have to thank the beautiful Sarah Davis. Yes, thank you, Sarah Davis. And if you are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, you need to check her out. She is also at Model Wellness. She is a life coach who mentors people on becoming whole. You need this woman. I'm telling you. Yes, you do. (laughs) So tell tell them. No, I'm truthful. Tell tell them where they can contact you, Sarah. Um, You can contact me on my personal website at Sarah, S-A-R-A, at Sarah Davis, D-A-V-I. Dot net, 
or Sarah, S-A-R-A, at modelwellness.com. And I would love to hear from you and help any way I can uh, healing that spirit, soul, and body. Yes. That's awesome. She could be your midwife too. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's on the card. That's actually. right. That's, you can find that on the website, the midwife card. Yes. Well, that's it for today, my friends, and thank you for joining us. I look forward to having my dear friend and host, Sharon, back with us hopefully very soon. I know she misses being here and we miss her. We'd like to thank our recording engineer and editor, Scott Frazier, who is also a pastor, worship leader, and motivational speaker. Check out his website at nc3wilkesboro.com. That's W-I-L-K-E-S-B-O-R-O.com. We'd also like to thank saxophonist Tom Braxton, our assistant recording engineer, and the one who is responsible for all the original music you hear in the show. You can check out his smooth jazz at www.tombraxton.com. This is a show about the transformation in people's lives and the journey of life that we're all on. And there are lessons to be learned from one another. So please grab a girlfriend, a husband, a brother, anyone special in your life, and join us as we get real. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, don't be afraid to sit in the chair, the makeup chair, because God is going to give you the makeover of a lifetime. For Sharon and me, bye now.